please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight and frighteningly imagined creatures. Ghosts supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, we're going to be looking into some unsolved mystery. Mwahaha! <laughs> Don't worry, that little joke's going to make sense in about 30 seconds. All right, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, is yours. So choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say Circleville? That's going to be a single shot. And every time I say phantom, that will be a double shot. All right, now that the business end is out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. And if you're a child of the 80s, well, then you grew up watching the best show ever developed, Unsolved Mysteries. (laughs) You remember that theme song? And I know that you can even hear Robert Stack's legendary voice in your head. And if you can remember all that, then you know there were few stories more legendary than that of the Circleville, Ohio letters. And today, we're paying homage to them as we jump into the mysterious phantom letters of Circleville. Your home is your castle. Even though there is no way to keep yourself and your family completely safe, we all have a reasonable expectation of security and privacy within the walls of our own homes. There is little that is more frightening than being watched by someone, some stranger, being stalked by them without ever knowing who they are or what they want. The feeling of helplessness can spread like a virus until it becomes all-consuming. While in most cases, this sort of activity is focused on one individual and the culprit caught, it's not always the case, my friends. And in a small, rural town in the United States state of Ohio, a phantom threat used a series of inexplicable unmarked letters dripping with menace, vitriol, and a surprising amount of information to reach out and conjure up terror, panic, and at least one unexplainable death. It would be a case that would see a possibly innocent man imprisoned, 
a possible murder, a whole town gripped in fear as they watched from afar, and a mystery that has never been solved. Circleville, Ohio, is a quaint, small town of around 14,000, located around 25 miles from Columbus along the Scioto River. It is a sleepy, rural town that under normal circumstances doesn't generate much news or excitement, and one might even drive right by it without giving it much thought at all. Beginning in 1976, though, one small town in Ohio became gripped with fear when an unknown individual began mailing threatening and sexually explicit letters to residents. Now, if you were raised in a small town, then you already know that there really are no strangers. Everybody knows each other. But the person behind the poison pen that wrote the Circleville letters was far too familiar with the goings-on of town folk, and for years, locals looked over their shoulder and wondered if they too would be targeted. More importantly, they wondered why regular people in a small town were in the letter writer's crosshairs to begin with. Imagine you're quietly living your life, minding your own business. You go to work, you take care of your kids, you mow the lawn, you walk the dog. Not necessarily in that order. I know that was funny. There's nothing particularly interesting about your life. Certainly not more interesting than the average person's life. Sure, you've got a couple of secrets. Open anybody's closet, you'll get smacked in the face with at least one skeleton or two. But it's not like you're a serial killer or anything. You don't have a meth lab in your backyard shed. And at the end of the day, your baggage is your business, not the entire town's business, right? One day, you throw on a pair of slippers and you mosey on out to your mailbox. Bills, bills, bills. Junk mail. Another credit card offer to decline. Wait, wait, what's that envelope with the Columbus, Ohio postmark? You're not expecting anybody, anything. You don't even know anybody in Columbus. You pour yourself a cup of coffee. You sit down at your kitchen table and you rip open the mysterious envelope. You open the folded letter and your heart screeches to a halt. You can't quite catch your breath. Your stomach does a somersault and your hands begin to tremble. You're being stalked. Written in nondescript block-style letters without any return address or signature and carrying secret, intimate information about the recipients' lives and often threats of violence, these letters were often laced with profanity and hatred, generously peppered with vulgarity and sexual imagery, and no one had any idea of who they came from or why. Although, for the most part, these mysterious letters seemed to be empty threats meant to scare or perhaps elicit an opportunity for blackmail more than anything else, this just would not be the case. One of the first of these threatening letters was received by a mild-mannered school bus driver by the name of Mary Gillespie, who was a rather typical working lady who, under normal circumstances, 
sort of blended into the crowd and wouldn't be normally thought of as an enemy to be lashed out against in the first place. The letter, which was postmarked from Columbus, explained that the sinner knew that she was having an affair with the superintendent of schools and warned her to stop. More chillingly, the mysterious writer of the letter claimed to know where she lived, that she had children, and also claimed that he or she had been steadily watching Mary and her house. The sender also told her in no uncertain terms that this letter was not a prank and that they should be taken seriously. Besides the postmark, there was no information as to who the sender could be. There was no signature, no return address, nothing. It was essentially untraceable. The understandably shaken woman began receiving a string of similar venomous letters, which she filed away and kept to herself as she kept a paranoid eye on her surroundings and wondered if any stranger who passed her on the street was the phantom letter writer. In each case, the letters were written in a nondescript, plain block letter style, they had no return address or signature, and they were all postmarked from Columbus, Ohio. It might have remained a weird secret if the sender did not then send a letter to Mary's husband, Ron Gillespie. This letter was similarly postmarked from Columbus and also had no return address or signature, and it ominously commanded him to put an end to his wife's affair or his life would be in imminent danger. For her part, Mary adamantly denied that any such affair was going on and that she had no idea what the letters were talking about. This didn't stop gossip from spreading around about the alleged affair, tarnishing Mary's reputation and standing in the small rural town. Yet, while many people were receiving them, and these letters were certainly creepy and not a little scary, none of the many threats within them ever seemed to come to pass. It seemed as if the mysterious sender was merely trying to scare them and spread gossip. For their part, the Gillespies merely did their best to put the letters under wraps and try to ignore them. But one particularly frightening and malevolent letter would really catch their attention, and it read, and I quote, Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. Admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBS, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. End quote. The Gillespies began to suspect that the sender was perhaps someone from within their own family, and they decided that it was likely a man named Paul Freshour, who was the husband of Ron's sister. They tested out this theory by sending Freshour a few anonymous letters of their own that simply explained that they knew who he was and that he should stop without any threats of violence. Interestingly, the strange, menacing letters stopped shortly after, and it seemed that the whole mystery might have been solved, or at least over. And just as the Gillespies were starting to think that the whole incident had passed, Ron received a mysterious phone call on August 19, 1977. It is unknown just who placed the call or what the two talked about, 
But what is known is that it was likely the letter writer and that whatever he had said sent Ron Gillespie into a rage. Ron grabbed his gun, told his kids he was leaving, and stormed out the door to drive off in the family's pickup truck. Not long after, the truck would crash into a tree at a nearby intersection, killing Ron in the process. Strangely, authorities found that his weapon had been fired a single time at some point after he had left the house, although it could not be ascertained just who he could have possibly fired at as he was driving the short distance from his house to the intersection, or how it could have possibly gone off accidentally. The police simply had no explanation for it. The authorities quickly ruled out the possibility of foul play and deemed the crash an accident, but this was looked upon suspiciously by the Gillespies and many of the people that knew them. For one, it was claimed that the sheriff had originally said that there had been foul play involved before suddenly changing his stance and declaring it to be an accident, and that the sole murder suspect that had been apprehended had been ruled out, all with very little explanation. There was also the fact that Ron's blood alcohol level at the time was supposedly found to be one and a half times the legal limit, yet his closest family and friends claimed that he hardly ever drank at all. Strangely, several residents also began to receive phantom letters from an anonymous sender who did not seem to want the mysterious death to be written off as an accident. And they claimed that the authorities were orchestrating a cover-up and also suggesting that the mystery letter writer had re-emerged. In the meantime, the shadowy letter writer once again began to send threatening, vindictive letters peppered with vulgar profanity to the Gillespies and other residents as well. Even city officials were targeted, yet the letters showed a particular vehemence and hostility towards Mary Gillespie, continuing to threaten her over the torrid affair until she broke down and admitted that she was indeed having the affair, but oddly claiming that it had started after the first letter had arrived. Even then, the letters continued to taunt the family, aimed at not only Mary, but her husband and sister as well, and there was no way to prove if they were coming from Paul Freshour, who denied having anything to do with it when confronted. This continued all the way up to 1983, when the mysterious sender graduated from malicious letters to a new form of harassment. Mary, who had kept her job as a bus driver even in the aftermath of her shameful secret being made public, one day noticed that someone had put up a sign along her bus route that threatened her daughter. Horrified and enraged, Mary stopped the bus and tore it down from its post, after which she noticed a box with a string protruding from it behind the sign, which was attached to yet another post. When Mary got to the bus and opened the box, she found that it contained a pistol and that the whole contraption was a primitive, jury-rigged booby trap of some sort that had been intended to shoot her but had failed to go off. The authorities were contacted and an inspection of the pistol showed that someone had attempted to file off the weapon's serial number, but it was a sloppy, unprofessional job and there was enough left for positive identification of the owner. Eerily, that owner turned out to be the very man Mary had suspected of being the phantom letter writer all along, her brother-in-law, Paul Freshour. 
When he was confronted, Freshour, who had since divorced Ron Gillespie's sister, claimed that the gun had gone missing a long time ago and that he didn't know what had happened to it, denying any involvement in the booby trap. Despite this denial, Paul Freshour was subjected to a handwriting test, which involved Freshour being told to copy what was written on the mysterious and in the letters. Besides the fact that this has been criticized as being an improper way to perform a handwriting test, as well as the fact that experts could not determine if Freshour had actually written the letters or not, the sheriff, nevertheless, deemed the handwriting to be his. This, plus the pistol registered to him, was enough to get Freshour arrested and accused of attempted murder. The letters and pistol were the only real evidence anyone had against Freshour when he went to trial on October 24, 1983. And he apparently had an alibi for the day when the booby trap was found, yet he was eventually convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 7 to 25 years in prison. By the end of the very controversial trial, despite largely circumstantial evidence, almost everyone in Circleville was convinced that he had been behind the mysterious letters, that he had attempted to kill Mary Gillespie, and that he very well might have had a hand in the death of Ron Gillespie. For his part, Freshour stood by his innocence to the very end, but the public was already convinced and it was taken as a matter of course that the threatening letters would stop with his incarceration. The residents of Circleville and surrounding areas finally started to feel safe again when the prison door slammed behind Paul Freshour, but their relief was short-lived. It seemed nothing could stop the poison pen from scribbling hate-filled diatribes against locals. The vitriolic letters didn't stop. They didn't even slow down. They also grew more bizarre and disturbing. Said Arthur and journalist Martin Yant, and I quote, They were being received all over the large area of central Ohio, so a lot of people couldn't understand how Paul Freshour could be mailing all these letters from prison, end quote. The new batch of letters included allegations about the prosecutor in the case, Roger Klein. The letter writer also promised to dig up the grave of a deceased baby and mail the bones to the police if they didn't look into Klein for allegedly playing a role in the murder of a pregnant schoolteacher. According to the letter writer, Klein had impregnated the teacher and then had her killed. The prison was just as mystified as everybody else. The staff had done everything they could think to do to keep Paul from writing and sending the letters. When checking all of his ingoing and outgoing mail didn't stop the letters, Paul was placed in solitary confinement with nothing to write on or with. But the letters kept coming. The prison warden concluded that there was just no way that Paul could have been writing the letters. And Paul himself received a letter that read, and I quote, Now, when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set him up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? End quote. Paul was a model prisoner for seven years, but when he became eligible for parole, the board rejected his request because people were still receiving harassing letters. It didn't matter that the prison warden had concluded it would have been impossible for Paul to have been the one sending them. And it didn't matter that the letters were postmarked Columbus, even though Paul was imprisoned in Lima, Ohio. 
In the face of the deluge of continuing letters, the postmarks, and a full investigation and observation of Fresh Hour, the prison warden came to the conclusion that he could not have possibly been responsible for the unsettling letters. And, due to the persistent letters, it seemed more and more plausible that perhaps an innocent man had been put away in prison. However, even then, many authorities bizarrely clung to the idea that Freshour was somehow responsible, to the point that his parole hearing was denied because of it, despite his being an upstanding model prisoner. It was not until May of 1994 that Paul Freshour would finally be released on parole after languishing for 10 years in prison. To this day, he adamantly insists that he is innocent and that the real criminal is still out there running free. There has been some evidence dug up by independent researchers that seem to suggest that he just might be right. Journalist Martin Yant, who spent years looking into the case of the Circleville letters, claims to have found new evidence in the sheriff's files that had not been put forward in court for some reason. Yant states, and I quote, Mary Gillespie told the sheriff one of the other bus drivers told her that she had been driving that same road about 20 minutes before Mary Gillespie found that booby trap at exactly that site. And when she went by that very same intersection, there was a yellow El Camino parked there. A large man with sandy hair was standing there. When he saw her come, he turned around and acted like he was going to the bathroom or something, but seemed also to be avoiding any kind of identification. The description of the individual does not fit Paul Freshour at all, and Paul had a very solid alibi for this time frame. There was no attempt at all to follow up on that lead, and if they had, as I say, they would have found that another possible suspect in this case had a brother who had a yellow El Camino, end quote. Not long after Fresh Hour's release from prison, the mystery letters slowly petered out until they were gone, and indeed they had experienced a lull even in the days leading up to his release. Strangely, although the letters stopped, there was an odd message sent to, you guessed it, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, which aired an episode covering the phenomena on November 11, 1994. The letter was received at the offices and simply read, Forget Circleville, Ohio. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. The letter was signed, The Circleville Writer. Roger Klein, the prosecutor who put Paul behind bars, was investigated based on the allegations that he had gotten a school teacher pregnant and had her murdered to protect his career. According to one account of the Circleville letter writer debacle, the police investigated the allegations and spoke with the parents of the deceased baby that the letter writer, writer threatened to dig up. Though their silence was requested, the couple spoke with an Ohio TV station and confirmed that the allegations were true. The letter writer did seem to be correct about Pickaway County Coroner Ray Carell, however. He had been accused of sexually abusing several children, and the letter writer posited that Sheriff Radcliffe had mishandled the case. In December 1993, Dr. Carroll was charged with 12 counts, eight of them alleging the doctor of gross immorality, sex crimes, corruption of a minor, pornography, obscenity, and indecent exposure. And remember David Longberry, the co-worker who came onto Mary? 
Mary and Ron initially suspected he might be the Circleville letter writer. Well, Longberry forcibly raped an 11-year-old girl in 1999 and became a fugitive on the run. The piece of shit. Ooh, sorry. Commentary. Now, the same source that said Roger Klein did, in fact, murder a pregnant schoolteacher, also stated that Longberry committed suicide while he was on the run. However, after a little digging, there isn't much information available about Longberry. Public Records di Directory states Longberry was still on the run as of 2005. Now, Klein, however, is listed as a deceased sex offender, but there's no information on when or where he actually died. And when Paul Freshour got out of prison, he started his own website, in which he lays out the case for his innocence and addresses numerous conspiracy theories surrounding the letters. It's kind of hard to take the content of Freshour's site seriously, and, well, here's why. Under the heading, which, by the way, is in all caps, FACTS THAT CAN BE CONFIRMED, Freshour writes, and I quote, I believe that the obscene, threatening, and dangerous letters were concealed because they would interfere with Sheriff Radcliffe becoming the National Sheriff's Association's president. See the date of the letters and the date of his involvement with the National Sheriff's Association. The crime rate in Pickaway County at that time would have eliminated him from this appointment. End quote. Well, instead of it being a fact that can actually be confirmed, it's little more than Fresh Hour's opinion. Starting out with, I believe, really isn't a great way to prove anything, so duh. The internet is full of theories about the true author or authors of the Circleville letters, and this particular theory, well, it grabbed my attention and would not let go. As it not only sounds very plausible, but the poster claims to have actually spoken to journalist Martin Yant, and I'll kind of give you the gist of what they said. Mary Gillespie's co-worker, David Longberry, was furious when Mary rebuffed his advances and started a relationship with Gordon Massey, the superintendent, instead. He was the first, yes, the first person to write and send the Circleville letters. This makes sense, since the very first letters sent to Mary and Ron only addressed the alleged affair between Mary and Gordon. Ron Gillespie knew it was Longberry who was writing the letters and calling the family's home, so one day he finally downed enough liquid courage to confront Longberry. His car accident was just that, an accident. This doesn't explain why Ron fired off a shot or where the bullet actually went, but as the poster points out, if he was sloshed enough, he could have fired it out the window in anger, but not at anybody in particular. His family said that Ron wasn't a drinker, so he would have been a lot drunker than a skunk with a blood alcohol content of 0.16, which is what it was. After Paul and Karen Freshour divorced, Karen started erecting signs around town and eventually the booby trap to frame her ex, Paul. Remember, Paul got the house and the kids in the divorce, so Karen had, well, pretty good reason to be bitter. Martin Yant described Karen as a very, very angry, manipulative woman who was still planting negative stories about Paul even into the early 1990s. Karen is further connected to the case by the yellow El Camino spotted at the intersection where Mary found the booby trap sign. Karen's boyfriend, and eventually husband, looked like the sandy-haired man observed at the intersection, and she had a relative who, you guessed it, owned a yellow El Camino. 
Moreover, some of the, letter, the later letters were typed, not handwritten. And this is what the poster writes, and I quote, Paul's ex-wife, Karen, had asked Paul's sister if she could use a typewriter that Paul had loaned to her because she was planning on writing a book. The sister was confused because she never knew his ex-wife to be a typist, and because they were going through a divorce at the time, found it odd that she would want one of Paul's items. His ex assured the sister that Paul was okay with it, so she relented and let her use it. Not so coincidentally was there a typewriter used in some of the letters that the people in Circleville had been receiving around the same time. End quote. We may never know for sure who wrote all those letters and put all those signs along Karen's bus route, but it goes without saying that whoever did it was a few fries short of a Happy Meal. It takes a rather frightening amount of anger and bitterness to spend years harassing someone, or as the case may be, trying to set somebody up. The only thing I don't understand is why. If Karen Freshour was involved, the letters continued even after Paul was in prison. Considering that, it led people to believe that maybe he wasn't the Circleville letter writer at all. So why? Another thing that I don't get is why the Circleville letter writer harassed other Circleville residents or how they knew so much about their lives. Perhaps it was just a ruse to draw attention away from the real author or authors. It's still unknown just who was behind the rash of bizarre letters or what they really wanted. And Paul Freshour passed away in 2012, with his seemingly unjust incarceration never finding an answer to that question. Now, I personally am convinced of a couple of things. First, there were multiple letter writers. There simply had to be, since there were more than thousands of letters sent all over the state. And there's just no way that one person pulls all of this off, especially considering the letters were postmarked from all over the state. And, you know, millennials, bear in mind that this was, you know, life before major computers. I mean, it was like the start of the computer era. So, you know, typewriters and handwriting is pretty much the way you go. So, you know, first off, I'm going to say take five minutes and write just one paragraph. And if your hand starts to hurt, then you understand why I think that that's crazy. Second, the initial letter writer was most definitely a woman. And I'm thinking on this way, the way the language was used. Simply put, when you read that letter, no man talks this way. This was most definitely a woman scorned. And with that in mind, I believe the writer was Freshour's wife. I've even pondered whether Mary herself was involved in an elaborate scheme to do her husband in, with the letters being part of the plan to make her look like a victim. Whatever the case, those two women definitely had a reason to, and I quote, set them up and keep them set up, end quote. They both had reasons to hate Paul, and, well, Mary sounds like a complete sociopathic bitch. Mary was on vacation in Florida the night Ron was killed, with Macy potentially meeting her there. And that adds a whole new dimension to this. What are the chances that Ron receives a phone call the night his wife is on vacation? I'm sorry, but something smells a lot worse than roadkill in the hot Florida sun. So, if it wasn't Paul Freshour, then who was behind this mysterious assault of phantom letters that left so many across a large area in such a state of fear? 
Was Ron Gillespie's death just an accident or something more ominous? And if it was murder, who was behind it? Why or how his gun was fired only a single time? And does that pertain to the case? And who rigged that booby trap for Mary Gillespie? And why did they want to kill her? Indeed, why did they so vehemently focus on her to begin with? Was there someone trying to frame Freshour for the whole sadistic affair? And why didn't they ever come forth with their true intentions or demands? And will the phantom letter writer ever strike again? It's hard to come to an answer to any of these questions. The true culprit behind this bizarre and frightening Circleville letter case has never been found, and it seems like they never will. It remains just one more weird case upon the landscape of unexplained strangeness floating about out in the ether out there. And the Circleville letters remain a little-known yet fascinating unsolved cold case. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of our episode. And I thank you for joining me here today. And I hope you'll take your time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have this evening. And I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.